when you amplify someone's voice, you're not repeating what they said. You're guiding the conversation back to them so that they can be heard. Because we, we have to do this, otherwise really costly decisions get made. Really costly decisions get made when, when we're not hearing from everyone in the room. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm continuing my investigation of cognitive biases by interviewing an expert who has thought about this topic a lot. If you like what you're hearing on The Rational View, please press like on your podcast app. Feel free to share it with your friends. I'd love to hear about what you have to say on our Facebook group, The Rational View. Committed to expanding happiness and inclusion in all communities, Valerie Alexander is a globally recognized speaker on the topics of happiness in the workplace, the advancement of women, and unconscious bias. Her TED Talk, How to Outsmart Your Own Unconscious Bias, has been viewed over half a million times and is used in boardrooms and classrooms around the world to enlighten leaders and future leaders about the brain science behind bias and how we can work together to create more equitable outcomes for everyone. Valerie's books include Happiness as a Second Language, Success as a Second Language, and How Women Can Succeed in the Workplace Despite Having Female Brains. Valerie has had a varied and successful career as a corporate securities lawyer, investment banker, and internet executive in Silicon Valley, and more recently as a Hollywood screenwriter and director. Ms. Alexander, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott. I am so happy to be here. Congratulations on your many successes. I'm really interested. Uh, I did not know you were a director and screenwriter. Tell, could you tell us a little bit about your Hollywood career? This is cool. Oh, sure. So I was in the Silicon Valley doing all the standard Silicon Valley stuff, taking companies public, both as a lawyer and a banker. Then I became an executive at one of those companies. And then my mom uh, got ill and she had a brain tumor. And I had I was in Hawaii uh, I was the VP of business development at an internet startup there and I got the call there. So I flew to Kentucky from there and um, she had a successful brain surgery, but her recovery was going to take some time. So I was just done with the Silicon Valley. So I went back to the Bay area. I sold my house. I sold my car, gave away all my furniture with two suitcases and a dog. I moved back to Indiana and I took care of my mom for a year. She got better. She's still with us. I was with her last oh, week in Kentucky. So this That's is great. all the outcome of this story. And that was 22 years ago. But it was the summer of 2000 when I left the Silicon Valley. And by the time I was ready to get back to my life, it was the summer of 2001. And I guess in my absence, the Silicon Valley fell apart. Because <laughs> and there was nothing to go back to. There was no more... IPO law or investment banking or any of that. So when I got back to California, instead of turning right to go to the Bay Area, I turned left and went to Hollywood. I gave myself two years to make it as a screenwriter because I had two years worth of income in the bank. And a year and 10 months later, I was in a meeting with Joel Schumacher pitching a movie he was going to direct, pitching my take on the adaptation of a book that he was going to direct, and I got hired. And wow. that started a super fun, interesting career. Yeah, my first movie was for Joel Schumacher, 
Um, and then my second was for Catherine Zeta-Jones that never oh, got cool. made. <laughs> the movie for Joel Schumacher never got made. Then I created a, a TV series for Ice Cube that never got made. And you can have an extremely lucrative and exciting career as a screenwriter writing things that never get made. But part of that was really unfulfilling. So that's when I started directing. And I directed a short film that won some awards. That was fun. And then I started directing commercials and public service announcements. I I, I did, I, I do, I was very involved with political issues. So I believe in everyone's right to marry whoever they love. So I did 48 commercials and public service announcements on the freedom to marry including an ad that ran in all four states in 2012 where it was on the ballot and we won in all four states. Um, so I loved that. Then the union that represents screenwriters went on strike. And, you know, if you're a writer, you got to write. So during the strike, I was writing books and then started being asked to speak, to speak about the topics of my books. And that turned into what has been a really fulfilling and exciting career as a keynote speaker. So that's primarily what I do now. I, I still, huh, people ask me what I write. And I say, I write dark political thrillers with complex female leads who aren't likable. What I get okay. paid to write is Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> so I do still write Hallmark Christmas movies and I do get paid for that. Um, but, but I really departed a lot from Hollywood as a, as a career because there's just so much more work to do and so much more interesting being an advocate for happiness or workplace happiness as a strategic business advantage, also coming from the place of brain science, and especially for eliminating bias, for equity and inclusion and allyship. Those are so identity. All those are so much more important to me now that that's really primarily what I do. Very good. Oh, that, that's an interesting story and what a pathway. Congratulations on your on your success. That's, that's amazing. You mentioned um, you can have a very lucrative career making uh, writing things that never get produced. And I felt the um, the synergy or the similarity with, with my job in the space industry. Uh, oh, yeah. My first job was on, I worked for five years developing a mission to, to measure upper atmosphere winds that eventually was canceled. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I, one of my clients on the happiness front was a, is a cancer research center. And one of the reasons they have a big happiness challenge is because people will spend nine years working on something and then it just goes away. The grant goes away or they, or someone else beats them to it or whatever reason, like you spend nine years of your life working on something that doesn't get done. Oof. Yeah. You, you mentioned actually, when we were talking before this interview, uh, that you actually played a role in the success of the James Webb Space Telescope. So I'm interested to find out about this because in my day job, I was involved with the group who designed and built the fine guidance sensor for the James Webb Space Telescope here in Ottawa. Uh, and that was a long project too. That was like 15 years to, from start to, to finish. Yeah. Well, I will, I will let you decide whether this is a gross overstatement of my, it is a gross overstatement that I played a role in the success, but I'm pretty excited about this. So um, as you know, but I will share with your listeners, when a telescope goes into space, there are two departments that oversee that. There's what's called the science center and there's the operations center. So the science center is the one that gets all of the grant applications to decide what it's going to point at. So the Science Center reviews what everybody wants to research because there's a lot of things in space 
And there are a lot of things people can need to look at to determine to, you know, maybe measure upper atmospheric winds or whatever they're measuring in space. So the Science Center gets all the grant applications, goes through all of them, decides what is going to be most valuable to society, what's the best use of that telescope. And they decide not only what it's going to point at, but grant money is involved with this. Who's going to get the grant to do the research that the telescope is pointing at? So that's the Science Center. The Operations Center are the folks who do the pointing. They're the ones who govern what direction that telescope points. So the Space Telescope Science Institute had been the science center for the Hubble telescope. Mm -hmm. Um, Small fun side note, I grew up in New Albany, Indiana, and uh, Hubble was a science teacher at my high school long before I was there. But that's who the Hubble telescope is named after is um, Mr. Hubble, who was a science teacher at New Albany High School. So I sort of feel so connected to space telescopes um, for having nothing to do with it. But so what happened was the Space Telescope Science Institute was the science center for the Hubble. They also were largely responsible for building the James Webb. And they discovered two years before, not discovered, they were just chosen by NASA two years before the launch to be the science center and the operations center for the um, James Webb. Well, that meant they needed to hire 200 engineers in a period of 18 months, which when you're not giving stock options and you're within a government budget, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. So they brought me in to, at the very start of the process, to do a talk on eliminating unconscious bias. Because if you look at the pictures of who works on telescopes, You might see a lot of familiar-looking demographics. <laughs> <laughs> can't see or listening. Uh, Al is pointing at himself. Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of like in that industry, and I was brought in to say they'd already realized we're not hiring two hundred engineers who are qualified to do this if we're only hiring the people who look like everyone is already in the room. We need to find ways to hire women. We need to find ways to hire people of color. We need to find ways to hire immigrants. We need to find ways to hire people who are neurodiverse or people who have physical disabilities. And so I did a unconscious bias session with Space Telescope Science Institute. So when that telescope launched, I was in tears. I felt so proud. I was like, it worked, that this happened. And I was a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of it. Wow, okay, that's very cool. Uh, you know, I've, I've visited Space Telescope Science Institute, and we have teams that are going down there all the time to work on the guidance sensor and keep it functioning properly. So that's really cool. Um, so maybe we should transition into discussing biases. Um, I, I found out about you through watching your TED Talk on, on unconscious biases, and I really liked uh, the way the thought experiment you used to introduce the topic of, of conscious or an unconscious bias. Uh, do you remember how you did that? Would, would you would you like to walk us through that? I'm I'm happy to walk through it and I'll talk to you about the genesis of it and what has become of it since then because it's uh, I'm going to say it's kind of become a global phenomenon. I now hear daily from people who are like, I was in a session and somebody did this. So it, it starts, and I'll ask all of your listeners to, if you're not driving, please follow <laughs> along with this right now because it's it's going to be you're going to love it. I promise you. But I ask everybody at the start, um, I say, close your eyes, close your eyes and take a deep breath. Now, imagine you're waiting to catch a flight 
You're sitting there at gate C23, knowing that you're about to board. And then after a few minutes, you start looking around and notice nobody else is sitting at gate C23. And right then you hear your name come over the intercom saying, your flight is about to finish boarding at gate B11. So you gather all your things, you unplug your chargers, you run to gate B11, you rush down the um, rampway, you step on the plane just as they close the door behind you, and the pilot gives you that look, because you are the last person on this plane. We all know that look. But then says, welcome aboard. So you find your seat, you fly to your destination. Um, When you arrive, you go find a local restaurant to have a dinner and it's the best meal of your life. You really enjoy this. And at the table next to you is a married couple happily celebrating their anniversary. So the next morning you get up and you go to the biggest technology conference in the world. And the CEO of this year's hottest tech startup just took the stage to speak. So you should have a solid picture of all of that in your mind, of running through the airport, of the pilot who says hi, of the meal in the restaurant and the married couple and the technology conference and the CEO on stage. So when you have pictures of all of those, go ahead and open your eyes because I have some questions. In your mental image, was the pilot black? Was the married couple two men? Was the tech CEO on stage a woman over 40? Or just a woman at all? Or did you just get an image of the tech CEO that looked something like Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? The reason I created that Interestingly enough, not having anything to do with talking about bias or uh, ever giving it, I never thought I'd give a TED talk when I created that. I was the CEO of a tech company. I was the CEO of a tech company that built communication platforms to help people stay in touch with the people they love. Um, Our first one was called Happy Couples. And the whole company started because my best friend had a very hard time remembering to do the things that his husband loved for him to do. And when I would go into these meetings with these investors, one giant mark against me because I was a woman over 40. Uh, And I was literally invisible in some of the rooms I was in. That was one thing. Second, the company started with the story of two married men. And I even had an investor tell me, can you just change the story to make it so that I don't, you know, he's like, you're going to get, you're losing people because they, they stop when you say his husband and you lose people. And then they say, and then the last thing is we had a CFO in our pitch deck. We, we didn't bring on a CFO. We were too early for that, but we knew we had targeted who we were going to hire as our CFO when we got that round of financing. And it was a black man, highly qualified. Someone I've known since Berkeley, I mean, forever. And I realized these were all bias points that were taking people out of the pitch. It took them out of the pitch just for me to be the person even speaking. It took them out of the pitch when I talked about my best friend, David, and his husband, Alec. It took them out of the pitch when I showed them a picture of the person who was going to be our CFO. And I realized I needed to do something. I needed to do something at the outset 
to get them in the mindset that they would eliminate those biases. And one of the things I learned in the work, I by that point, by the way, I'd already written the book about how women can succeed in the workplace. I'd already been speaking for six years about male brains and female brains. There are more than a thousand peer-reviewed scientific st- studies proving that the male brain and the female brain function differently. <laughs> I, I am not going to, I'm no longer going to appease people who want to say that's not true. It's true. Our brains function differently for neurotypical cisgendered male brains and neurotypical cisgendered female brains. So I knew that one of the ways to eliminate bias is to hang a lantern on it. Hang a lantern, make people see that their bias exists and, and then it wipes it out. It really does. I, I advise women when they're negotiating for salary, if you're in a safe enough space to do this, start by saying, I know traditionally it's held against women when we discuss money. But one of the things I'm excited about working for this company is knowing that you won't do that. So we need to talk about my salary. Very good. Yeah, I can I can feel the pressure that you you must have felt in that situation when people, you know, are we going to lose investors because of this bias or this bias? Everyone feels that pressure and, and so many people just collapse and we'll we'll say, okay, well, we'll change things. We'll we'll hide the we'll hide this, we'll hide that, we'll, we'll collapse to the biases. And so it takes a, a certain bravery to, to highlight those and to stand up and not to uh, compromise your values in that situation. So so kudos to you for, for going forward with that. Um, I'm sure you must have faced a lot of biases throughout your career in Silicon Valley uh, as a woman. Um, you know, what, are the, what are the sort of biases that, that really hurt and, and impede uh, progress in, in technical fields like you've encountered? Sure. I, I wanted to say a word about Silicon Valley right now. Um, it was very different when I was there. From 95 to 2000, it, we were so, everybody was so desperate for employees. Nobody could keep up with the growth. I mean, companies were being formed out of thin air and they needed everybody. They needed engineers, they needed lawyers, they needed accountants. If you walked in a room, when, when I was I was an IPO lawyer, which is initial public offerings. We took companies public on the stock markets, on NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, primarily NASDAQ. That was the tech uh, platform. But if you walked into a room as a lawyer, there was your law firm, another law firm, there were three investment banks, there was an accountant, and there was the client who was the company. Every one of those entities desperately needed employees. And so you got hired away. You, I, I mean, I very quickly went law to venture capital to investment banking to being an executive at an internet startup. But what was also happening is every one of those entities was hemorrhaging employees. So we were losing attorneys so quickly. I was inheriting clients. This is, I will share with you, true story. I got staffed on an IP. My first IPO ever was a company called Ozymail. It was an internet service company that the CEO was Malcolm Turnbull who later became the prime minister of Australia and who I wow. still have worked with and I love, I adore Malcolm. Um, our politics are different, but I adore Malcolm. <laughs> but, um, but I was sitting in the organizational meeting of that first IPO, hoping somebody would say what the letters IPO stood for. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> and oh two months later, the senior associate quit. And I wound up running that deal. And right out of that deal, my next deal, my next IPO 
was E-Trade. I was the attorney that took E-Trade public. And that's another deal I wound up running for a period of time, not the whole deal. My, I had a senior deal team partner who's the greatest person on earth. Tom, uh, Tom Lima, I'll say his name. He was, he is, he's retired now, but he was the best person to ever work for. But he had, he was indisposed for a period of time in that deal. And I wound up running that deal. And that was in my first year out of law school. So I share that because in the Silicon Valley from 95 to 2000, it didn't matter what gender you were. It didn't matter what color you were. It didn't matter what physical abilities you had. You, if you could do the work, you were going to get the work. And it was great in that way. The things I experienced that were just straight up sexism were things happening in my law firm. And I'll give, I'll share a couple stories so that people who don't think this happens in their organization can start to see it happening. One, we had overnight, um, uh, it was called the word processing center. So you had an assistant who did your typing for you during the day, but that assistant left at 5 p.m. And we had night assistants we could book and they went until midnight. And if your work was going to go beyond that, you could book someone in the overnight center. And I was working uh, insane hours. I, I had six weeks in a row where I billed 100 hours a week. It was insane. And so I would book these night secretaries that would book the overnight processing because I knew the work I needed to have done. And I can't tell you how many times a male partner who had not booked them discovered he was there working a little later and would pull my night assistants. And I, I, would, I was fighting it as much as I could. And I had one partner say to me when he pulled my overnight person and made that person work on his deal, um, he said to me, well, I'm sure you know how to type. Oh. Yeah. And, and that's not uncommon. I have a very dear friend who was, when she was practicing law and she's black, she actually gave up on getting any of the assistants aside from her own assistant. And to the point where she would just do her own typing. And then she drew a line when one of the partners asked her to type something for him. As you learned in the TED talk, my assistant wanted me to enter my own timesheets into the billing system. Something was never asked of any male attorneys. And the reason I bring this up is because for women, for people of color, we do not acknowledge how exhausting it is to not have the support you need from the people to do your job. And, and that our male colleagues not only have, but they think we're getting. So, I mean, I watched it with my mother. My mother was an insurance adjuster. God bless her. She, she this is a woman who found herself without, uh, you know, male support when my dad left and did not have a formal education. And she went out and got a job as an insurance adjuster which was fantastic. It was enough to support our family. Um, and she found out years into it when she was like killing herself, working 60 to 80 hours a week. Oh, all of everyone else was a man and, and they were married and their wives were handling the paperwork part of the job. Wow. No, that's nice. <laughs> Again, we have to think about what added burdens we're putting on people because they're not getting the same support from their subordinates. They're not getting, they get pushback from their colleagues. Oh, I'll, I'll put this back to you, Al. How many times in the sciences have you seen a woman say something about her work or her research and someone asks her for the proof 
or asks her for the backup of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you seen that? For sure. Yeah, no, that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you, you definitely have to be aware of of these unconscious biases and 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 it's it's a lot of times like you're not even you're not looking for it right if you're not looking for it you don't realize that you're doing it um and i've learned i'm continuing to learn about my unconscious biases all the time and trying to uh trying to address them. But yeah, it, it's it's definitely something that unless someone like you comes out and, and slaps us over the head with it, we're not going seeking these things because they're they're part of, of things we don't think about. And there's so many things that people don't think about, these unconscious biases. Uh, I mean, I, I started this podcast to try to address rationality and public policy and the attack on science that I see uh, happening globally and in many areas. And, you know, the one thing that I constantly encounter is bias is at the root of all of these problems in some way or another. Um, so what what are the what biases do we have that, that we're not aware of? What what if you could tell all of my listeners to think, think about this? What they I'll give you the example I use when I speak with companies. Um, and I have, as, as you and I talked about before, Al, like I literally could talk, I have a five hour version of this program <laughs> that I could talk about. So I want to use some really specific things that gets people to suddenly like, whoa, eyes open very quickly. And I talk about Jackie Robinson. Um, do you know who Jackie Robinson was? Baseball star, first black man in yeah. the the league the first the first black man in the modern major leagues and, and there was there was by the way and jackie robinson and there was another one named larry doby and i don't i never i don't want to discount that larry doby was in i think jackie robinson was in the national league and larry doby was in the american league um and larry doby was just three months behind jackie robinson and he was he was put through all the same um you know challenges but when I talked to people about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in the modern major leagues, and again, there were black players in the earlier major leagues, but in the modern major leagues, I asked the question, how did Jackie Robinson have to behave? How did he have to behave both as a player and as a man? And it's that he had to be perfect. He had to be so above reproach he had to be beyond responding to the indignities that he experienced. Uh, I ask people if they know what charging the mound is. And I have a little video of charging the mound. That's very funny. And I talk about that when a batter gets hit by the pitcher and they think it was intentional and they charge the mound, um, that means they run at the, um, they're running at the mound to get into a fight with the pitcher. And if that happens, um, the next thing that happens is the entire benches clear out and everybody is in the fight now. So I ask, what would have happened if Jackie Robinson had charged the mound even once? Like, what would have happened to him? He would have, got, clearly he would have been thrown out of the game. He might have been arrested. He probably would have gotten beaten pretty badly. He might have had it continue when he left the stadium. He almost certainly would have been kicked out of the game for sure, but possibly even kicked out of baseball. It would have eliminated all the other opportunities for other black players if he had charged them out. 
And further, when a player charges the mound, the benches clear out. And I ask people, could Jackie Robinson be certain that if he charged the mound, the bench would clear out for him? And then we want to talk about what's called intersectionality. When you literally have to choose which of your identities are you going to be in order to, this is, this is one of the hardest concepts for people to get is when we're forcing people to choose which identity they represent that day. You know, are you showing up as a woman or are you showing up as someone who's neurodiverse? Are you showing up as a black person? Are you showing up as gay? Because what community do you have to be part of? Well, Jackie Robinson in that dugout, when you're in the dugout and one of your teammates charges the mound, you damn well better get out there. That is the full expectation as a member of that team. But now here's Jackie Robinson, one of his teammates charges the mound, and he knows that if he runs out there, he's going to be the one who's arrested. He's going to be the one who's beaten up. He might be eliminating opportunities. So at every time he's in that situation, he is forced to choose between his identity as a black man breaking a barrier and his identity as a member of this team. That's that's when we talk about the concept of intersectionality, we have to create spaces where people can be all of their identities. And so when I use that as an example, that's really suddenly eye-opening for some people when they suddenly ask, oh wait, are there people in my workplace who have to be more perfect than others? in order to be seen as belonging, in order to fit in? And here's some really simple questions. Are there some people who can't get angry at work because it would make other people think they're dangerous? Are there people who can't cry because that would make people think they're too weak to be there? Whereas somebody else could cry and they, you know, I I do a lot of work with police forces in the military. And this is, that's a big one. Like if a woman cries, and she's a police officer, military. That's that confirms everybody's belief about women. Oh, they don't belong here. They shouldn't. They they can't handle it. Not allowed it. to cry in that but job. If I'm, I'm sorry. Not allowed to cry in that job. Right, right. But men, we've seen men cry in those jobs. Um, and there's there's a lot of those kind of different standards. And when you start asking yourself, who isn't allowed to express their emotions? Who has to be perfect every time they show up? We, we just talked about women in sciences and tech and engineering and medicine. When a woman contributes something, people will say, I, I did a talk once on the female brain stuff. Now I have, like I said, there's more than a thousand peer-reviewed studies about female brains. I did a talk once for a legal association about the differences between the male brain and the female brain and why that is held, why those differences are held against women because our natural instincts aren't highly rewarded even when they get to better outcomes. Whereas male instincts are highly rewarded even if they get to worse outcomes. And we'll talk about that in a second. There was a man in the audience who came up to me afterwards and he'd written down every single fact I'd stated and was like, where did this come from? What is the support for this? Do you have the article that says this? Wow. For literally every fact I'd stated that he wanted proven. And I just luckily with most of them, I literally could quote the source at that moment. But I guarantee that guy has never, ever done that to a male speaker at that association. Yeah, it boggles the mind that some people seem justified in, in that sort of behavior. Um, like, is, is it not, it's not obvious to them that 
they're doing it. I mean, I, in my own behavior, I, I've had to adjust my unconscious mansplaining uh, and talking over female colleagues or, you know, just quiet colleagues in general. Um, you know, it's something that I've learned over the years is that you need to make sure that you you listen for for voices or people that are because you have people on your team that don't that aren't a type personalities you have people that are introverts you have people that uh just don't want to speak out or they're not senior and they feel you know afraid to to speak their mind you need to adjust and make sure that these people get a chance to speak and a lot of people and myself included uh would you know in the We'll talk over them or ignore them or, or minimize their opinion. So it's, it's, it's something that you really do need to, to focus on if you haven't thought about it. Um, and, it, you know, it's, 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 it's not something to be embarrassed about that you haven't thought about it yet. Now that you know about it, think about it. <laughs> and by the way, there's, there's a, a bias I want to talk about. And there's a solution I want to talk about. I'll start with the solution. The solution is amplifying voices. And that is everybody in the meeting, everybody in the room should be empowered to amplify anyone else's voice. And it sounds like this. Carol just suggested a, new, a different testing model. I'd like us to discuss that further. Or, you know, I don't think Jamal was done with his point and I want to hear what he was saying. And when you amplify someone's voice, you're not repeating what they said. You're guiding the conversation back to them so that they can be heard. Because we, we have to do this, otherwise really costly decisions get made. Really costly decisions get made when, when we're not hearing from everyone in the room. And that is often the result of a very particular kind of bias called the cascade bias. And the cascade bias happens whenever there's a group of people trying to come to a decision or even discuss a, a, a problem or solution. The first person to speak, if the next person that speaks agrees with them, it's almost impossible for anyone else in the room to disagree with them. So I want you to think about a, a, think about a situation where 10 people are deciding between a candidate Bob and candidate Jennifer. And two of them think Bob is the absolute best choice and eight of them think Jennifer is the best choice, but nobody knows what anybody else thinks. If the first person to speak says, we got to go with Bob, Bob is the best possible choice here. And the second person says, yep, Bob is the answer. Those eight other people st now start to believe, oh, wow, maybe I'm wrong because of Jennifer, because I like Jennifer or wow, I don't want to risk my social capital by speaking up for somebody that nobody else likes. And what happens is nobody actually emphatically speaks up for Jennifer because you can't be emphatic in the face of two other people like that. And then the group will not only cascade towards Bob, they will then have what's called confirmation bias or, and um, affirmation bias, where they will coalesce around deciding that Bob is the better choice. And so I tell people, if you are in any group situation, take two minutes of absolute silence and have everybody write down exactly what they think and exactly what they believe and hand all those in and have one person read all of them out loud. Oh, that's a great idea. 
because what happens when when the first person who speaks up is the one who generally gets their way generally the first person to speak up is going to be white and most likely male um for sometimes for cultural reasons sometimes for corporate culture reasons you know just by conditioning there are cultures that train people to be quiet there are you know women are less likely to speak up in a group situation and so we lose those opinions by allowing that cascade effect and not even realizing it's happening not that's that's the bigger issue we don't realize it's happening when it's happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i mean illogical decisions in general are are costly um it's hard to tell you know what's the worst bias that's the most de- deadly or dangerous or, or costly bias i i just had a, an interview uh with uh nobel laureate uh, dr daniel kahneman who uh worked on um work yes he, he he does he did a lot of he, he published a book thinking fast and slow and his Nobel Prize was that until the 1970s, economists assumed that people made logical decisions in markets, uh, in their models of markets. And he said, well, he put up his hand, wait, what? they don't. People are illogical at heart. We're emotional creatures. Our minds make snap decisions based on feelings and definitely not on formal rules of logic that benefit their users as well as they should. So, you know, it's He's got a he got a Nobel Prize for pointing out that we're illogical, uh, based on the formal rules of logic. It's difficult to to work through them, and sometimes you have uh, results that are not uh, obvious or in, or counterintuitive that are correct. Uh, so I, I'm wondering what are, what are the what how does this most affect people? What what are the worst problems? Well, thinking fast and slow is about we have shortcuts. Our brain has so many shortcuts. And by the way, I'm going to take a moment to um, give a little praise and throw a little shade at Daniel Kahneman. Um, first off, I have a master's degree in economics from Berkeley. So I, I followed his work and he behavioral economics is such a fascinating field. And I'm just, I'm so happy that we're now having conversations about the way people actually behave instead of the way they behave in, in a model. That's great. And he has advanced that so much. Uh, I read Thinking Fast, Fast and Slow painfully because every single time he used an example of an engineer or a business person or even somebody driving a car, the driver was always he. I would love for Daniel Kahneman to go back through his own book and change every metaphorical he to a she and see how it reads because it was painful for me to get through that book realizing how much bias he had in his own writing and that nobody caught it. Nobody said, go back and make 50-50. Every nurse and teacher was a she. The occasional doctor was referred to as she, but every engineer was a he. Every business person was a he. Um, Shoppers for food were she. Shoppers for cars were he. Yeah. Mm. You see that in commercials too, right? Oh, yeah. But that's an enormous level of bias that Daniel Kahneman, writing a book about bias, did not catch. That his brain automatically defaulted to male in some categories and female in other categories. And our brains do that because that's what kept our species alive for the last definitely 
you know, millions of years, but definitely last 2 million years. And I want to talk about this a second, the evolution of the brain. Cool. Um, especially in terms of bias. So 2 million years ago, the human brain was the size of a meatball. Um, and it began tripling in size and it didn't just blow up like a ball. It added new compartments. And one of the compartments it added was a prefrontal cortex. And that took about 1.2 million years of evolution for the prefrontal cortex to evolve into place. Now, why? Why did our brain go from, you know, the size of my fist to the size of a head of cauliflower? Well, because 2 million years ago, Homo habilis, the first hominids, represented a giant leap forward in evolution in many, many ways, but one of them is they built tools. And not that they made tools. A monkey will strip the leaves off a branch and have a stick to use. They built tools. They tied a rock to a stick to make a hammer, or they sharpened that rock and tied it to a stick to make a spear. When you have a spear, you can hunt bigger animals. And when you can hunt bigger animals, you need more people. It takes more people to bring down a woolly mammoth than to bring down a meerkat. You have to cover a larger, you have to protect a larger hunting territory now. You have to carry transport meat back to the caves. And so hominids, two million years ago, were the first to begin living in tribes, not just familial units, but tribes. And by the way, there's this why there's over a thousand peer-reviewed articles on the differences between a neurotypical cisgendered male brain and a neurotypical cisgendered female brain is that when hominids began living in tribes, they realized for the tribe to survive, we can't let women die. Women are more biologically necessary to the survival of the tribe because survival means the ability of the tribe to reproduce itself. A tribe with 10 women and two men can still reproduce itself. A tribe with 10 men and two women cannot reproduce itself. And so we're all descendants of the tribes that reproduced themselves. So we're all descendants of the tribes that survived. So what happened is when we began living in tribes, our brains needed so much more processing capacity. And that's when they began tri tripling in size. And that's when we developed a prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is what controls our emotions, our social interaction, and our complex decision-making. And that's when we started developing really easy shortcuts on who's in my tribe and who's not in my tribe. Mm -hmm. Because who's not in my tribe is going to kill me. And who's in my tribe is not going to kill me. And that's why encountering anyone outside your tribe triggers your amygdala. Now, the amygdala is the most ancient part of the human brain. Go as far back as our fossil record goes, the human brain had an amygdala. The amygdala is our threat perception center. The amygdala is what triggers the complex process of choosing fight, flight, or freeze and flooding your blood with cortisol if you are going to, when you perceive the threat. So the amygdala perceived anything as a threat, flooded the blood with cortisol. And here's the more fascinating thing for how it affects our lives today. Think of the amygdala as the big brother in the brain and the prefrontal cortex as the baby brother in the brain. Okay? Okay. When a big brother and a baby brother are alone in a room without adult supervision and they both want the same thing, they both want the last cookie, they both want control of the remote, who wins that fight? The amygdala. <laughs> <laughs> Big brother, the amygdala. When the amygdala is engaged, it literally shuts down the prefrontal cortex. Mm. So in a state of high alert, in a state of fear, you are not capable of making good decisions. You are not capable of having positive social interactions. You are not capable of controlling your emotions. Um, that's why super advanced warriors train in a heightened state of fear 
so that they can train to keep their amygdala activated. Your average manager at in your tech company has not done that. <laughs> so when their amygdala is triggered, it shuts down their prefrontal cortex and they make really poor decisions and they revert to the most basic instinctive response. And so if they're if they're interviewing a new engineer for the team and somebody who has never held that job before walks in the office for the interview, hate to break it to you, their amygdala was triggered. It, it was triggered long before their conscious brain said, oh, thank God we're getting new representation on this team. And when that amygdala was triggered, their blood flooded with cortisol and their, that flooding of cortisol put them in a stressed out state and they can't tell you why. They don't know why, but that person just doesn't seem like they go with the team because that person caused them physical stress because they were not aware enough before that person walked in the room that it was going to trigger their stress response. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, the brain science behind bias and the, the brain evolution, um, I, I could go into much greater detail about the male brain and the female brain, the evolution of the instincts in our prefrontal cortex. When the male instinct was developing for success in hunting and combat and the female instinct was developing for success in keeping the offspring of the tribe alive, because those were the two core functions of those that gender divide. And again, on neurotypical cisgendered um, you know, brains. A perfect, perfect example is uh, in a biased sense, who do we value more highly as a society? The firefighter or the fire inspector? Who has calendars made of them? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd want a fire inspector calendar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All heroes. The firefighter. We value putting out fire so highly that we reward a person for putting out a fire, even if it's the fire they started. And this is the amygdala response that's making it more important to us because there's a there's a trauma happening. There's we're stressed out, whereas prevention doesn't get the same amount of money. And this is crucial on in in policy making too, right? We're always in a responsive mode. The politicians do much better in responsive than, than in preventative, um, you know, spending public money on prevention just doesn't seem to get votes. Whereas being seen to have a photo opportunity during a crisis is much better for your chances of getting reelected. So yeah, I, I see that, that the tribalism and the fear are really key biases that, that, that drive a lot of our problems and their polarization society. We really need to to bridge these gaps and, and be aware that we're being driven into fear situations and, you know, trying to be forced into a tribalistic situation. Uh, it, you know, you, you need to distance yourself. So what, what can we do to, to recognize this and to help other people recognize this and, and, and break the cycle? I, first off, you have the ability, like, we, we started with this visualization exercise. So I'm going to, before we get into the actual steps you can take, let's, let's just do another visualization exercise really quickly. So if everybody listening, again, if you're not driving, close your eyes, close your eyes right now and take a deep breath. And now picture a family moving into your neighborhood that you're excited to get to know. Picture the ideal person to work on your team. Picture your state swearing in a new governor. 
or your city swearing in a new mayor. And now take another deep breath and open your eyes. And I'm going to guess your mental images just changed drastically than they were just an hour ago. This, we have to normalize the unexpected. We have to normalize people in different roles. That's part of it. We also can't deny when we're having a stress response. If someone walks into your office and that no one who looks like that person has ever held that job, you say, excuse me just a minute, and go walk down the hall, take a deep breath, get a drink of water, and tell yourself, okay, I've cleared out the cortisol. I'm ready to conduct this interview or conduct this meeting exactly in the way I should, in the way that is fully inclusive. Um, don't don't look for defensiveness first. I, don't don't defend. Take your own emotions out of the conversation. Don't center. Th- don't have a need to center things around your positions and your emotions. And if somebody's telling you something, accept that their lived experience is different from yours, and they have, and that they're therefore they have a valuable contribution. Also, stop rewarding putting out fires when you're not rewarding preventing fires from starting in the first place. Look really carefully at who's preventing fires from starting in the first place and make sure they're getting as highly rewarded because they're giving you a more valuable service. They're giving you a more valuable outcome. I don't care how easy it is to spot. I, I'm gonna share, Al, a funny thing. I work when, when I work with companies, one of the things I ask everyone in the room is that please ha- have everyone write down the top three traits you would want to see in a leader in this company. The top three traits you're going to value in a leader in this company. And then if it's a small enough room, I have everybody read their list. If it's a bigger room, I'll choose like five people and have them stand up and read the list. I promise you, Al, empathy is on almost all their lists. Almost all of them. Yes, empathy would be... uh, I've had this when I've worked with police forces. They still say empathy. With the military, they still say empathy. Wow. That's on everybody's list. Okay, where in your hiring criteria is empathy your top hiring criteria? Where in your performance metrics is empathy the most rewarded trait? If your top salesperson has no empathy whatsoever for anybody, but has the highest sales, does that person get a bigger bonus? than the net, you know, a lower salesperson who didn't sell as much, but is super empathetic and mentors people and sponsors people and advances your corporate goals. And if you're not rewarding something, you're not getting it. If you don't make an inclusive workplace your top priority, then you are not going to have inclusion in your workplace. And you're going to have to start changing your performance metrics to reward the people who create inclusive workspaces over the people who do the easier to spot fire putting out over the people who, you know, cut, they cut costs. Some do cut costs in their division by 20%. Great. They cut costs in their division by 20% by making everybody who works for them miserable. Newsflash. <laughs> those costs are about to skyrocket, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that's not as easy to see. That's not as easy to measure. So if you have something you value, you better start hiring for it and rewarding it and reward it over things that it's hard to, re- hard to justify to, sh- to shareholders. Yes, we're, we're 
rewarding happiness in our workplace over cost cutting. But you know what? If your shareholders aren't idiots, they're going to realize, okay, rewarding happiness in our workplace is going to cut our costs substantially. Indeed, indeed. So we're getting towards the the end of our time slot here, and this has been great. I, I want to uh, ask one more question um, of of the the expert on happiness here. Um, it, it, when I was talking to Dr. Kahneman, I learned that our perception of past events isn't a really accurate representation, say, of the duration of happiness that we actually got but rather strongly influenced by uh, significant events or by how the event ended. Um, some would say that the pursuit of happiness rarely leads to contentment. As an expert on happiness, what's your opinion? Are hedonists the happiest people? I think pursuit of happiness and being a happy person are two different things. I, I believe, first off, people ask me if happiness is a selfish thing. Like, should, are you selfish by looking for happiness? And uh, you know, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism said, if you want to eliminate all the darkness in the world, first eliminate all the darkness in yourself. So you are a much greater contributor to the world if you're a happy person. I distinguish between being a happy person and just being happy. Happy is a feeling. Happiness is an emotion. It comes and goes. It's going to come and go in your life. But you can consistently be a happy person. I actually, impolitically, impoli- in su- suggest it's like religion. You don't, whatever religion you practice, you don't stop being that religion because you go through hard times. And I say, work on being a happy person to that same extent where you can know that when you have the hard times, it's not going to break you. It's not going to make you miserable, that you can bounce back to a higher level of happiness. And there's multiple steps we can take to to build up that core of happiness. Now, going back to the brain science, the human brain imprints negative messages seven times more strongly than it imprints positive messages. And that's because you needed to know these berries are poisonous. You didn't need to know those berries are delicious. So, you know, you, you needed, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of fascinating, our, our ear is more attuned to lower pitch sounds and higher pitch sounds. That's one of the reasons that's another bias against women. We don't mm-hmm. literally hear female voices the same way we hear male voices because two reasons, male voices generally presented more danger and we had to hear a growl. We didn't have to hear the birds chirping. And there are so many things about the development of our senses, development of our brain, the development of our baseline reactions that can encourage or discourage happiness. When we look, I'll give you, I'll wrap with this. Okay. So I can give your audience the best happiness advice right now in the short term. There's a lot I can, there's, there's a book you can read called happiness as a second language (laughs) that shares a lot more, but one of the, one of the biggest impediments to our happiness is memory is regret is looking back at some point in our life and say, Oh, I should have gone left instead of right at that intersection. And that is, I will share with you. If you have regret, that is the best creative writing you ever do. 
because you're writing this fantastic story about how awesome life would have been on the alternate timeline. And you know what? You don't get to see the alternate timeline. And if you are in any way plagued by some alternate timeline you can't let go of, that you think everything would have been better if I would have been on the alternate timeline, you know what? Get out a piece of paper right now and write the story that proves that's not true. Put yourself on that alternate timeline and write the version of it where you wind up in jail or penniless or hated by everyone you care about. Because that's as likely an outcome on the alternate timeline as the outcome, the rosy viewed outcome you have created for yourself that is haunting you and making you unhappy. And so there are ways that we can just look at where we are in life and say, well, I am here and I can be miserable here or I can be not miserable here. I'm not going to say happy. I mean, that that's a high, that's an impossible standard if you can't feed your children. I would never be so insensitive as to suggest that. But you, you do have the choice about how you're going to respond to the situations you are in. And if you say, I'm intend to get back to a place where I'm happy, you can let that be your guide. You can say out loud, I'm a happy person. And as long you don't have to mean it, it doesn't have to be true when you say it. But as long as you keep saying it, you start building those neural pathways in your brain that believe it. And when you start building the neural pathways that believe that you're happy, amazingly, you start to believe that you're happy. Yeah, it's amazing the, the neuronal circuitry and how that works and how reinforcement of of what you focus on makes you think more along those lines. Is it the the research on those along those lines is is, is pretty well incontroversial now, and and it's amazing you can train you can train your brain. Uh, and yep. thank you for hundred percent. Thank you for giving us some tools to to apply. Um, some great wisdom. I uh, really enjoyed chatting with you thank you for for coming on the show valerie um for coming on i'm going to send you a t-shirt you can have a, a rational view hey. t-shirt uh i really appreciate it thank you i've been admiring the t-shirt that you're wearing and i was thinking oh i hope i get one of those so i hope all your listeners get a chance to see this very very cool t-shirt and hopefully they will buy one <laughs> ah, excellent thank you so much thank you this was a pleasure If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.